Hello, our empathy listeners. This is Shurag, your host. I'm so happy you're here. So, I've been working on this episode, I guess, all of 2021, thinking and reading and talking to experts. Like, like recently, we had historian and professor from Harvard, Michael Sandel, join us at UBC. Which, at the time of his lecture, took me a lot of time to think and understand and to grasp the truths of economics and injustice and. and so many problems we continue to face in our communities and 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 i realized as i'm as i'm reading about policies and solutions i i lost track of the problem i lost track of the stories of real people for this show today we we sat down to chat with an independent senator from ontario and she also teaches law and and i asked her this and she said I think the strength of the arguments, policy arguments, uh, what strengthens them is to not just have an abstract legal concept or idea um, or philosophy, but when you've got that rooted in the very practical examples of people's lives, it gives life to you. Can give examples. I I, I don't know if you felt that, but that that feeling of not being heard and seen is so crippling and dangerously common. If you felt that recently, with everything that is going on, our, our hope for this episode is that we can empathize with problems and continue to introspect and talk about solutions. For this episode today, we focus on how we can make the economy work for people, criminal justice reform, and domestic violence prevention. Also, a big thank you to Kylie, Adeline, and Howard. For the music that you'll be hearing in this episode, it is truly magical. So let's get started with the friendly banter, the banter you've come to expect from your two hosts, and now we also welcome Kim into our empathy family. Hi, Karina. How are you? Hi, Shrug. I'm good. How are you? <laughs> Doing very good. Um, Did I ever tell you that my mom can predict the future? Okay, can she predict that I'll I'll have ten dogs in the future? <laughs> <laughs> I'll make sure to uh, ask her that the next time we talk. Um, but yeah, uh, the latest from her is that I'm gonna have three kids apparently, three girls. I I think it's her plan to make me believe in this, so it really happens, and it's a way to of like tapping into the next generation because she was dealt. a pretty bad hand the first time with me and my bro and now she's like yeah hopefully they have daughters and daughters usually turn out to be better than sons so i think that's the game <laughs> but but uh, on a more serious note this this very random belief which is um, not scientifically backed for some reason it makes me feel very happy you know a family a team and then uh, as you and our listeners know i tend to get very involved in all the things that are wrong with our world and i'm like wow like i i worry about my future family and get anxious a bit i i think there are a few people like me who are worried maybe listening to a show right now um we've got global warming we've got a society that is continuing to fail and living up to its ideals so many things so to make sense of this crazy world we have a guest with us today oh my she she's in this room right now with us damn zoom <laughs> virtual room <laughs> virtual room you you never know who's in the room right with zoom 
<laughs> oh, it's fantastic to be with you. And hey, if your mom can predict the future, ask her if my bills are going to finally get through this time, will you? It'd be great to know. <laughs> you could start the celebration early. Um, I'll ask her for sure and uh, let you know what uh, what she says. But but I'm I'm pretty sure that uh, she's thought of something special for you and and the country. That that yeah, amazing things are going to happen. The future is. Uh, looking awesome uh, <laughs> um, a quick introduction about Kim we have Senator Kim Pate from Ontario she is a champion champion for human rights champion for fighting the good fight against climate change champion for a more just society and economy she does all this work on the senate floor for us she's been working tirelessly first with the elizabeth fry society looking out for and supporting domestic abuse survivors she was appointed to the senate floor in 2016 she is a law professor and also the coolest senator on tiktok senator we love you on tiktok like, I think I'm the only one on TikTok. <laughs> so there's not much competition. <laughs> um, yeah, did, did, did I miss anything? Like, you do and have done a lot of things. <laughs> no, that was very kind and generous. And I'll just try and uh, live up to that very generous introduction. Thank you. Hello, our listeners. This is Shirak from the studio. For our episode today, we have three acts for you. And during these transitions, I'll be sharing some analyses that came across when I was researching our communal legal system, the economy, and truth and reconciliation. Also, Karina and I will be asking the senator some questions. But before we do that, our first act is about life. All our lives. You know, how are we, really? So, Senator, how's life? Well, thank you for asking. Um, like so many, there have been many challenges, large and small, uh, that the, have come up. Uh, some related to, uh, you know, not so much my own personal life. I'm very privileged to, you know, have a job, have, be able to continue to do the work during this time. But many people very close to me had, did not have the same privileges and opportunities that I've had. And so that, of course, uh, causes us all to be uh, a bit stressed. And, you know, it, it isn't lost on me or many, uh, many of us that uh, during this time, while there was great supports rolled out for some people, uh, the most challenged in terms of whether it's because of their race, their gender, their class, mm-hmm have really struggled. And um, depending on what poverty line you use in this country, three and a half to five million people receive no support, while the rest of us either still had jobs, had benefits, had a, a way to keep a roof over our heads. And it just in the in the shadow of Parliament Hill here, I'm sitting here on the shores of the Kitchissippi in the unceded, unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabek, otherwise known as Ottawa. And there are women who were working full-time in care homes um, and minimum wage jobs who've had to live in the homeless shelter because they couldn't afford accommodation during this time. And I think that is 
that is, when we talk about criminal, that's criminal. We should not be um, in a country as rich as Canada, should not be seeing situations like that for anybody in this country. Mm-hmm. That was spot on 100%. And, and then there's one number, a statistic that when I think about it, I cannot fathom the grand amount of people affected by COVID. And not the endless, but the trauma. So there has been a 900% increase, a 900% increase in calls to the crisis line during COVID. The amount of pain and suffering we all have to process. How, how long will it really take for all of us to see the light at the end of the tunnel? Kim mentioned the growing inequities. So yeah, the impact of the pandemic was universal. Virtually everyone was affected, but the response, the treatment was inequitable. Quoting the government of Canada, the the pandemic has created new inequalities in our society and exasperated existing ones. Karina asked the senator how, how we can address this, and the senator gave a real eloquent answer with policy items. Now, now we may disagree with solutions, and, and I understand the reasonable amount of time it takes to form consensus and implementation takes money, but I want to again emphasize the problem. A problem we, we all can agree needs a solution. So one in seven Canadians live in poverty. Out of that, one in five racialized families live in poverty in Canada, as opposed to one in 20 non-racialized families. Overall, racialized women earn 32% less at work. They earn 32% less at work. One in two status First Nations children live in poverty. One in two kids. And all my pragmatic friends, let me let me tell you that poverty costs us a lot of money. That lot is around 72 to 84 billion dollars a year. 72 to 84 billion dollars. If if you're a British Columbian who's listening right now, it is costing you 2100 dollars a year. And to my liberal friends, I, I just want to say that when when liberals hold the government in, in the U.S. and Canada, we, we fail to address the problem. We have short-term band-aid solutions. Recently, reporter Johnny Harris of the New York Times uh, published an excellent piece that you can watch on YouTube that explains how liberals further exasperate the problem with, with examples from California and Washington State. The, the link is in the episode notes. Okay, that was my rant. And now back to the senator for a solution. Oh, very good question. I, particularly as we've seen during this pandemic, I want to see, and the whole reason I joined the Senate in the first place is I would like to see us breathe life into the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms so that truly everybody does have access to protections, to human rights protections, to charter protections, that it isn't a function of your class, your race, your ability Mm -hmm. that you're able to get ahead, that in fact, these are opportunities made available to everybody. Um, As I've already said, Canada is a wealthy country in terms of natural resources, in terms of human resources, and there's no excuse that we don't have every single person in this country fed, clothed, housed, and educated. And uh, those, you know, so I I would like to see part of the reason I joined the Senate is I want to see things like a guaranteed livable income, pharmacare, dental care, mental health care, a full housing strategy, free post-secondary education. 
the very things that if we have them available to everybody, lay the groundwork for a better standard of living for all of us. Mm-hmm. And so in a more equal society, in a more just and fair society. Mr. Cesar, what was what is driving you to see this through? Well, I think it's the it's um, probably many stories. Not probably, it is many stories. I'm, you know, um, as I as I continue to age, I'm I'll be 62 next week. Um, and as I continue to age, it be, you know, it's really clear to me that I have had huge opportunities. And many people who come from the same background I did have not had the same opportunities. And many of the people that I love and care about and have loved and cared about for many years uh, don't have the same opportunities. And I see it as a, you know, if you're asking for drive, I think, everybody should have those opportunities and it's really incumbent on those of us who have uh, privileges and access to resources and opportunities like I have had to continue to open the way for more people to have those opportunities rather than just rest um, and you know rest on what we have and and the enjoy the privileges that um, I don't think I could enjoy the opportunities I've had if I wasn't also trying to make room for more people to 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 come along as well and go further. I mean, I have every expectation that many, many of the people I've had the um, incredible, incredible honor and privilege to know and work with will go well past what I'm doing and are teaching me every day. And so young people like you and the other young leaders I have, uh, you know, I have learned so much from, uh, I can hardly wait, I'll probably cark it before you guys are all you know, in doing everything you'll do, but uh, I look forward to continuing to learn and continuing to grow as a person. And and uh, most importantly, whatever opportunities I have to try and crack those open as wide as possible for as many others. So that was Act 1. How's life? I, I guess it's accurate to say life has been tough, going back even before COVID. Now, now moving to Act 2, something that just a heads up, we talk about domestic and gun violence. In this year, I've, I've come across a lot of stories of women affected by domestic violence. These, these stories are heartbreaking and, and very recently, just days before a recording with Kim and in, in the Yukon, a community called Faro, uh, where just a few hundred people live, it had an incident of gun violence which resulted in two deaths. And, and this had roots in domestic violence. We lost Sang, a, a mom of two kids who, who had asked for protection from the abuser just less than a year ago. And, and yeah, I guess our justice system was late for her and her kiddos. The senator worked for the Elizabeth Fry Society and, and the people there are doing some great work and and during Kim's time there she worked for and listened to a ton of survivors and and Kim has a background in law and policy so I wanted to know how does she make sense of these stories that are that are so much more than just numbers and those numbers that become stats and that we talk about on podcasts. 
um, one more aspect of the criminal legal system stood out to me. It's its relationship with Canada's indigenous population. I was recently listening to Justice Laferme. He is the first appellate court judge in Canadian history with a First Nations background. And he mentioned the Gladue principles that were enacted in 1999. So in 1999, in a case called Gladue, the Supreme Court of Canada said that colonialism creates challenges for many indigenous people, and they are more likely to be sent to jail. Gladue principles try to address these failures and make sure judges do not repeat the same mistakes that add to discrimination. You can, you can read more about the Gladue case in our episode notes section. So there was this one case that shook our system and brought us Gladue principles, though, though we still have mandatory minimum sentencing. And in Jan of 2020, the Correctional Investigator of Canada, Dr. Ivan Zinger, released this statement. It, it goes like this. Uh, that in 2016, their office reported that persons of indigenous ancestry had reached 25% of the total inmate population. At that time, their office indicated that efforts to curb overrepresentation were not working. And in 2020, sadly, they were reporting that the proportion of indigenous people behind bars has now surpassed 30%. Indigenous people account for 5%, 5% of the general Canadian population. Dr. Zinger added bold and urgent action is required to address one of Canada's most persistent and pressing human rights issue. Here is Kim with her act to sang. Um, yeah, um, as Sarah, you, you've worked with survivors and you've heard so many stories over the past few years. Um, how, how do you make sense of this? Um, because I couldn't make sense of anything when I was reading and listening. Mm. Well, it's, you know, when people are out for individualistic gain and out for themselves, that is a very, um, you know, supremacist model, whether it's male, whether it's white, whether it's uh, privileged in terms of resources or class. And so much of the way the law has developed. So, for instance, violence against women and children, the law, the law of self-defense, for instance, um, and the appreciation of the extent of violence against women has not been, I would argue, even with Me Too and all of the um, the work that's been done by so many important, uh, you know, leaders, still isn't fully appreciated. I think the fact that um, the law of self-defense developed around the way men, particularly white privileged men fight, whether it was a duel or a brawl, a barroom brawl, uh, means that women and children don't still have the full protection of the law. And so the the fact that we don't see self-defense in a different, you know, that if women engage in hand-to-hand combat with the men who, who um, beat them, who threaten them, in most cases, we know they end up dead. And so the fact that we have not fully acknowledged that the way that someone can defend themselves when they are not of equal strength, 
physical strength, whether they don't have the same powers and privilege, has to be very different. And we haven't really done that yet. And um, part of the reason I stopped working with men in prison, who I, for a period of time, worked with men who had committed violent, misogynist acts of violence, sexist violence, as well as racist violence. And, and part of the reason I stopped doing that work, many people thought it was because of the men who were in prison, but it was actually because of the people working within the system that I stopped working with men because all of the work individual men who had been convicted of violent acts did was often undone by the very people who were supposed to be quote unquote in corrections and correcting. And the, 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 the misogynist, racist, uh, class biased attitudes that pervaded the system meant that even pe people who were really trying to work on themselves didn't really have an opportunity because at every step, the other attitudes, the sexist, racist attitudes were being reinforced. And I think that's a big part of why, not I think, I'm, it is a big part of why we see the prisons full of poor, racialized, but also when we're talking about women, predominantly women who have responded to violence first perpetrated against them. I can't tell you how many times when I've seen co-accused, a woman who may have done less than a man who she's charged with will get treated as more dangerous, more violent, mm -hmm. more problematic, more a risk to public safety than the man who may have first procured her, may have first um, used her or beaten her, or may have coerced her into doing doing the uh, otherwise coerced her into doing the act or participating. And so when you see that, you realize we still have a long way to go uh, that we're uh, we, is part of what I mean by breathing life into the charter as well, that we say we've got gender, race, and um, we don't don't really say we have class equality, but we say we've got gender, race, and, uh, and um, equality across disabilities. But in fact, we know uh, that's not true. Um, since you deal with all these heavy topics every single day, like every single day when you wake up, you're just fighting for to have justice in our society. How do you unload? How do you like distance yourself from your work and just have that recharge moment to like give yourself a break? Like, what do you do to do that? I need some. Uh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we need those tips too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I didn't always do it well, and sometimes I still don't do it well. So bear in mind that I'm still learning. And again, young people have taught my, particularly my own children have taught me uh, that, you know, you need to take a break, that we need to, mm -hmm. you know, go for a hike or go for a walk. And um, having a dog, those of you on TikTok have met Rodney, uh, our 12-year-old border collie. Um, having a dog means I have to go walk. And I used to say, thank goodness I had children, not for the all the usual reasons that children are so wonderful, but it actually made me stop and eat regular meals and have <laughs> bedtimes and things that um, it sounds a little, you know, silly to even say it. But the reality is uh, before I had children, I would off, you know, I would usually start with a swim in the morning. I'd leave the house at five, go for a swim. And often I didn't get home till meetings and everything till after 10 at night. And, you know, that wasn't the healthiest lifestyle to have it looked healthier because I was swimming in the morning, but mm -hmm. and then I would spend, you know, 14 or more hours um, working. And so, so I think, you know, I have the benefit of working at the things that if I had stayed practicing law would have been my volunteer 
would have been my outlets, if you will. And so, I, you know, I, that's why I say I, I feel like it's incredibly, I keep using the term privileged because I do feel incredibly privileged that I, I get to work at the things that many people uh, do as their volunteer work in addition to their work lives. And, and so by building in the things that really um, ignite me and, and get me excited, it means that oftentimes it, you know, it sounds trite to say it, it doesn't seem like work, uh, but even when it is work, I'm, you know, it, it's the sorts of things that mean a great deal. And so it's easier in some ways to do them. Uh, but I do try and take a break next week. Um, it, up until I got appointed, with the, with the, the holiday we took after I was appointed was the first, my kids pointed out, the first holiday we ever had that wasn't linked to a work trip. Well, part of that was <laughs> functional. I wanted to work for nonprofits. And that meant I didn't have the same salary that some of my former classmates had and it meant that you you do other things so I had trade-offs I would um, volunteer to go and do human rights training in Australia every two years for instance in exchange for uh, tickets so that my kids and I could go and have a um, add-on to that some time off and and time to visit and uh, explore different parts of the world uh, so next week I'm uh, it I already mentioned it's my birthday week but it's also um, there's an international women uh, political leaders meeting in Iceland well I love Iceland and so uh, and it was thanks to my daughter she that's where she wanted to go when she graduated high school so five years ago we went off for the first visit I love it and so uh, my partner uh, who's a has a judge has taken some time and we're going to have some extra days and holiday there too. So it's also trying to build in so it doesn't feel like you you have to work, work, work and then wait for a break, but that you can build in the things that enjoy and enliven you mm -hmm. um, throughout your day as well. Wow. Happy early birthday, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> hope you Thank enjoy you. your trip. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I will. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, I'm, I get it. I, I just need to add this one tidbit before we move to Act 3 that, that that political pragmatism needs to really reckon with the current state of the problems. That, that includes climate change and a whole bunch of other issues. Yeah, that was my rant. Um, and now let's talk about policy. Aren't people the most important aspect of a policy? Let's see. Here's our third and final act that is filled with some nerd talk about policy and I promise optimism. After all, you know me, there has to be something warm and fuzzy. Our third act, hope, a dreamer's charade. Um, so so our, our, our listeners may or may not know this about you, but, but you still do a lot of uh, outreach. You, you still visit prison and uh, talk to incarcerated women. Yeah, so, so you've been involved in listening to stories uh, and also designing policies. Uh, like there's that good link that a lot of times I fail to see. And political leaders, like we are either very involved in policy design or very involved in hearing people's stories. 
Well, in you know, part of the the reason I do that is when I when I first started appearing before parliamentary and senate committees when I came to Ottawa, uh, you know, when I was with John Howard and then with Elizabeth Fry Society and would appear before committees. I think the strength of the arguments, policy arguments, uh, what strengthens them is to not just have an abstract legal concept or idea. Um, or philosophy, but when you've got that rooted in the very practical examples of people's lives, it gives life to, you can give examples, one, of how a certain policy or, or legislative directive impacts people directly, but it also means you can then imagine some other kinds of policies and, and legislative directives that would be helpful. And so part of the reason I still go to prisons is, one, I told people when I was appointed that I would not abandon the issues. Uh, the last senator who was really focused on prison issues before I was appointed died 20 years before I was appointed. His name was Earl Hastings, and he was someone a lot of us relied on to amplify the issues and, and to have Senate the Senate look at them. So that's one reason. The other is... Um, senators, judges, and members of parliament all have a right of access to our federal penitentiaries. And as Louise Arbour said um, five years ago, in fact, she probably said it before then, but the first time I heard it um, from her lips was five years ago, she said, you know, every person who's responsible for, for creating law, for enforcing law, um, for being part of the system, if they actually don't know what the impact of their decisions are and where people go as a result of decisions, say, to make longer, more punitive sentences or to, um, you know, make it harder for people to get out on parole, to create mandatory minimum penalties, if they actually don't know the conditions of confinement to which people will be subjected, really they have no business making those laws. And so I essentially made that pitch to senators. And so a third of the senators now have been into the prisons. And I don't think it's any um, accident that about a third of them have actually insisted on really progressive changes to laws as they've come before as that impact prisoners. And so I anticipate that, you know, we also are inviting members of parliament to join us. And I anticipate the more people know about what actually happens in the prisons, it's, it's harder to then say, yeah, I may know that that's, you know, that yes, most of the people in prison um, more resemble my mother, my brother, my uncle, my father, my sister, my daughter than they do whatever uh, myth or stereotype I have about who's in prison. And once you know that, you don't, you can't unknow it. And it means that you have to actually take a much more cynical view to law creation and policy creation if you do choose to ignore it and in any event do something you know is going to be further counterproductive. And so I have every hope that that, um, that kind of work will actually inspire other people to do things differently as well. And similarly, um, just uh, day before yesterday, yesterday, I, I um, or Saturday, I got back from Prince Edward Island. And the last thing we did on the island was a number of us went to one of the reserves to meet with First Nations folks. And similarly, there are people in this country that didn't apparently didn't know about residential schools, don't know even though they may live uh, within, you know, very easy access, 10, 15 minute drive from um, a reserve, have not visited and don't know um, who's living there, what the conditions are on those reserves in terms of living conditions and uh, opportunities or lack thereof. And so those are all things I think we have a responsibility to do as part of our work. It doesn't mean you have to go all the time to every single one, uh, but if you don't familiarize yourself with the conditions, similarly, 
homeless shelters. I mean, there, I was very, very um, impressed with a doctor who had been doing work with homeless people in this um, community in, in Ottawa for many years. And the strength of character it took and the courage for him to admit during the pandemic that he had no idea living in the shelters where he provided supports were people working full time at minimum wage jobs. He presumed it was people, you know, either with addictions or other mental health or other issues. That's true as well. But there are also 90% of the communities in this country, someone working full time at a minimum wage job often doesn't have benefits and often cannot afford to rent a one bedroom apartment in the communities where they work. So those are things that people need to know about. And most, you know, many people, particularly if you're, you know, you're in the position, you've got wages and benefits and, you know, especially, you know, many of us here in the Senate wouldn't necessarily know that there are an awful lot of people in this country living without the supports. PEI, where I just was during the pandemic, 24% of the population had to rely on food banks for food. Now that that kind of food insecurity creates all kinds of other health issues, all kinds of other economic issues, and all kinds of other uh, challenges in terms of our criminal legal system too. Yeah, um, you mentioned hope. Um, what what makes you hopeful? Um, <laughs> She's gonna say youth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. You know that it is. Youth make me hopeful. Um, I think. I think ultimately when we talk to you know, if if we take the time to sit and speak with folks, rarely are we as far apart as it appears when we're posturing. Um, the, only, the only thing I don't like about social media is I think the inability for people to express themselves in caring, mm -hmm. empathetic ways is hampered by sound bites and, um, you know, 15 second and texts and that sort of thing. I can't tell you how many times... You know, when I'm busy, when I'm busy, you know, we're all busy at different times, but I will often fire off a text and I can't tell you how many times people have said to me, oh, were you mad? And I think, no, why did you think I was mad? And they said, well, you just said yes. And I say, oh, well, because I was just trying to answer you fast. And I have to now remember uh, oftentimes to say, sorry for the brevity. I'm just racing between meetings, but yes, I'd love to do this. And then, and in fact, I may have even responded to you that way when you first wrote it. I, you know, like. You had a very just, sweet response. Okay. Very sweet <laughs> and very quick and like okay. three minutes, I guess. I was like, damn, nobody gets like so fast to me, like in three minutes, except my mom, but yeah. <laughs> well, that's very kind of you, but yeah, no. And I, I think it's important to respond as quickly as possible, but it's also sometimes, you know, the downside is sometimes I, um, especially if it's someone asking something and I'm saying, well, I can't right now, I might say, not now, um, let's talk in a week. And sometimes people will interpret that and for good reason. And so, um, I think the more we can interact in human ways, uh, you know, which is as we're doing this by Zoom may sound odd to say that. But, you know, in fact, when I was a kid, I remember watching the Jetsons and, um, you know, they had television, you know, you could talk to people on television and it seemed like a distant possibility. Of course, now we do it all the time. And during this pandemic, mm -hmm. the technology has become even more available to more people. So I do, I have great hope. Um, and yeah, I think uh, young people are making, you know, leaps and bounds beyond anything we've ever imagined. And 
And so I just hope I get to uh, continue to experience that for as long as possible. Uh, I have a follow-up question on that. Um, so, so, so when when I read and when I when I talk to people about um, about things about life, like uh, uh, they they think that I'm very idealistic, <laughs> but um, I think um, hope, as, as you said, is like a necessary building block of pragmatism. Would you would you agree with that? Um, or do you think, again, that's way too simple in my thinking? I think if we don't act with great faith and hope that things can always be better, um, then the opposite is is not really palatable to think always of cynical, negative options. Uh, there are some people who live and work and rule in that way. And I think that's not the way to create a better world for anyone, not the person mm -hmm. who's experiencing life that way, nor the rest of the people that they interact with or that they have influence over. And so I think hope is um, hope, hope without action is, you know, is, is, is probably not. Um, it's just fluff. Well, yeah, it, it's, um, it, you know, it's like what you're hoping for someone to give you a magic wand so that one day the things mm -hmm. will be better. Um, but hope with action and hope with intention and hope with, um, you know, working collectively with other people, I think is incredibly positive. And, and it is the way that we will uh, move forward. And, you know, I'm, I, I'm always hopeful. I'm, you know, I'm often, people will describe me as, as sometimes, um, cynical as well. I'm cynical about things like usually tired old practices that have been shown to be ineffective or that only privilege certain few. And yes, I can be fairly caustic about those sorts of things, but I am incredibly optimistic and hopeful about um, what, you know, what is possible and what our human potential is to actually create a far better world than mm -hmm. um, that what each of us may individually be able to. Uh, I also think um, it is the work of collectives. I mean, oftentimes people like me get in positions and I often say if ever it looks like I like the platform, the paycheck or the title too much, I hope that the people that I have um, have around me will knock that down. One of the hardest things mm -hmm. when I first came to the Senate was getting used to suddenly my ideas were all brilliant. I don't think so. Like, you know, that suddenly, you know, yeah. everything I said sounded great. I don't think so. And, you know, one of the challenges is oftentimes when you get into these kinds of positions, people are reluctant to challenge you. And I, mm -hmm. that is a problem. And that, you know, so uh, the more we can, you know, understand that we need to work collectively, that nobody is any better. My father, even though he was in the military and he was in the enlisted ranks, taught me a healthy disrespect for authority and not in a way of being disrespectful, but that you should never respect someone just because they are in a position of authority. Yes. Uh, they have deserve no more respect than any, than the person on the street who has uh, no, you know, no or virtually no uh, physical or economic possessions. And so uh, that, and, you know, every religion, every spirituality has the basic same tenant. You should treat other people the way you would like to be treated. And I think if you do that, um, then, you know, then we all treat each other better and we all start thinking about the needs of everyone, not just ourselves. What you're saying is really important because 
the power and balance, especially like wherever you're working, wherever you are at life in life, like the people that are below, they're always scared to speak up and express their opinions because of like the fear of the punishments that go with it. So it's, I think it's really important that leaders, no matter where you are in the world, you really like be open minded to these um, critical feedback and just be open minded to change in general, because other people have different opinions, but those opinions are equally as important and you never know like something that they said can be something that can be done and change the world for the better so I think it's really important that you brought that up that uh we should just make sure that we're treating everybody equal because if we not if we're not then the world is going to be a disaster <laughs> um one of your recent uh uh healthy uh Oh, healthy uh, criticism or oh, I forgot healthy rejection. Um, the the term your father used. I'm sorry. A healthy disrespect for authority. <laughs> healthy disrespect for authority was uh, a criminal justice reform uh, bill as two or seven that you introduced uh, in 2019 or 2020. Uh, well, I first introduced it in 2017. Believe wow. it or not. Wow. Yeah. Um, yes, three times. I'm hoping fourth time lucky or the government will pick it up. Persistence <laughs> <laughs> um, <yeah>. is key. Persistence <laughs> is key. Um, what other things are you hopeful for heading into this year and heading into 2022? Well, I do hope. I mean, I was meeting last week with Premier King and PEI. PEI and the Yukon want to embark on a guaranteed livable income so that we get mm -hmm. rid of the judgmental, moralistic social assistance schemes that exist across the country, that we actually provide opportunities for people not just to survive, but to thrive. Um, I'm hopeful for that. I am hopeful um, there are a number of senators and members of parliament who want to see us get rid of repeal mandatory minimum penalties. And so Bill S-207, as you mentioned, which was the last iteration of that bill, was actually, again, not an original thought by me. Erwin Kotler, when he who used to be a minister of justice and under whose leadership some mandatory minimum penalties were introduced, he introduced a bill to allow judges the discretion to not impose mandatory minimum penalties. And I basically took that and updated it. And if the government wants to introduce that, I would just get behind it. Uh, we also, you may have seen just in the last uh, 24 hours, reporting about a cannabis um, that even though tens of thousands of people were eligible for uh, record expungement because of the cannabis provisions, fewer than 500 actually applied and received uh, uh, pardons or record suspensions. And so the, another bill was to allow records of conviction to expire so that people don't have to go through the extraordinary cost and the bureaucratic process of getting uh, pardons. And I've also um, been working with some of the senators who work on immigration and refugee issues to say that if a child comes to the country as a refugee or immigrant, ends up in the care of the state and ends up in that but through that process, because it's often a fast track into the criminal legal system, getting a record that they should not be deported. And in fact, that they should have, because the government has become their parent uh, through the child welfare system, the government has a responsibility to ensure they also have citizenship and not to then uh, essentially suck and blow, bring them in as a child mm -hmm. of the government and then deport them if they uh, then have challenges. And so those are a few pieces of legislation. I'm also working with... Um, 
some other senators on how do we actually harness um, the positive and with with on Canada, the uh, young people to actually how do we talk about the Internet as a tool for good and educate uh, more folks about how to challenge the use of the internet in negative ways. We've seen, for instance, Facebook knows that many young women in particular are negatively impacted by Facebook and Instagram. So how do we actually ensure, one, they try and that hopefully Facebook changes its behavior or meta universe or whatever it's being called, net next, changes its behavior, but also that uh, more individuals, particularly young people, think about how to critically analyze what they're seeing, reading, experiencing on the internet. And so, uh, again, it's 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 not my bailiwick. I'm a uh, techno twit and I, you know, everything I learn about the internet, I'm learning from young people. And so we're engaging with young people to say, okay, how, what can we do here that would be useful, value added versus, you know, in most cases, what happens is people try and bring down a hammer and and we know that that kind of um, approach really just means you catch the people who are the easiest to catch. You don't actually necessarily change the behavior of everybody else. And that those who have resources and power and authority often still get away with the bad behavior. So those are some of the things we're looking at working at um, this, this session. That's a good list. You've, mm-hmm. You're busy. Very long list. <laughs> I'm skeptical of Facebook. <laughs> Oh, I don't know. If, I don't think they're going to do anything, but yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. That was a good uh, ending. So, Sandra, do you want to add anything else um, to the show? Uh, I just want to thank you very much for doing this and for inviting me to be part of it. I'm very excited to the, the work that you're doing and the contributions you're making. And I look forward to following your careers as you go forward. <laughs> It won't be impress. It won't be as impressive as yours, but we'll try to live up to it. <laughs> it will be way more impressive. You too, it already is. You're doing way more than I was doing at your age. Um, you were in law school. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I do have a short question just before we wrap off. Um, just about your TikTok account. Have you ever considered, you know, doing the TikTok dances with your team to engage more with the youth? Do you want to do that right now? <laughs> well, it's interesting you asked me that because when I was first approached um, about doing the TikToks, I said, oh, no, I'm not doing that singing and dancing. And, you know, if it's not going to be substantive, I'm not doing it. And they convinced me, Maggie and Madison convinced me, no, no, it can be substantive. You can do it. And, you know, they've got me to do a few things, trends, I think they're called, and and to engage. <laughs> and, you know, they've added the music in that's mm-hmm. trending or whatever. Um, and, you know, the first couple of ones we did after Rodney got more attention and was more popular than any of the substantive stuff, I thought, ah, I'm not so sure this is a good idea. Um, but then, uh, you know, the number of young people who have engaged, even with those challenges, or what are challenges for me, um, I think has made it worthwhile. And so, in fact, just today, uh, they were talking to me about, uh, we usually do the taping um, over a day or two, and so they're just getting ready to do the next 20. And they said, you know, we... (gasps) We need you to get, yeah, I know. And so, you know, sometimes they'll tell me you're not energetic enough and they make me redo them. And so, um, 
and if you saw the blooper reel, you see that, you know, sometimes <laughs> I get a little frustrated. So, yeah. And um, so, you know, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. But, um, yeah, if, if it was if it was just pure entertainment, I probably wouldn't do it. Yeah. Tell the truth. Yeah. I have. It's, it's right a, now it's entertainment and educational. So that's yeah. good. <laughs> yeah. It's a really good balance. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Karina, do you want to end the show? Yeah. So thank you, Kim, for joining us once again on today's episode. So we forgot to say in the intro that we actually stopped doing solo episodes and this is a very abrupt change. So we'll continue the solo episodes next season. Um, but thank you to everybody listening to us. Uh, this has been The Empathy Show. I'm Shirag. <laughs> and I'm Karina. And just, we just want to say a big thank you to the team behind us, Irene, Justin, and Gabriel. And thank you to everybody who's been tuning in um, bi-weekly uh, to us. So we'll see you guys next time. And yeah. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> and thank you to all of you for all you do to try and promote more empathy. On the graves In the cracks of a thousand leaves Somewhere in between Our past and our future Rolling over All the dividing things Are you still listening? Want to be heard by you Slow fall into the Indian Sea Where the cold and the heart meet And the powers that be
Takes me there. 